Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Wendy Redstar. The Columbus Museum of Art is presenting the career-length survey, Wendy Redstar, A Scratch on the Earth. It's on view in Ohio through September 3rd. The show is curated by Trisha Lachlan Bloom and Nadia Rivera Fella, and is accompanied by a publication from the Newark Museum of Art, which originated the exhibition. An enrolled member of the Absaluga Crow tribe, Redstar's work explores both Native American ideologies and colonialist structures in ways that point to both the past and the present. Her work has been the subject of solo shows at the Anderson Collection at Stanford University, the Jocelyn Art Museum in Omaha, Mass Mocha, the Missoula, Montana Art Museum, and more. Wendy Redstar, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. This program is sponsored by Getty, presenting the Art and Ideas podcast. Join Getty curator Laron Brooks for a special miniseries featuring three renowned black poets. Hear Claudia Rankin, Terrence Hayes, and Kevin Young discuss the intersections of poetry and visual art and how they make sense in an uncertain world. These wide-ranging conversations move from Prince's ever-changing style to philosophies of teaching to 18th-century cosmologies and Black Twitter. They also ponder questions like, how much courage does it take to be an artist? And is it radical to record your daily life? Listen now on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu podcasts. Enter the Mirror at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago is only here until July 23rd. Enter the Mirror calls us to acknowledge the truths that are difficult or unpleasant to see. Grappling with violence, trauma, corruption, historical distortion, and abuse of power, Enter the Mirror calls on us to see our complicity in the world around us, as reflected in the powerful work of 20 artists. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago at mcachicago.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. And we're back. Wendy Redstar, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. As a history nerd, one of my favorite things about your work is that it's research-driven and that it lays bare the ways in which European Americans have historically built visual image of Native Americans in ways that have pretty much always been fantastical and propagandistic and have tried to be controlling and are quite often false. And then your work reclaims representation in ways rooted in research and then, and then also in your own family and in, in conceptualist practices, often while maintaining the very sly, wicked, wonderful humor of early conceptual practice. And so I thought a way into all of that in a way that would kind of bring it all up at once was to ask you about a work you made in 2021 called Omnia Echo. Who was Her Dreams Are True? And who was Fred E. Miller? And how did you come to find, you know, the two of them together, as it were? <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing story. So how I found that image of Dreams the Truth and her English name is Julia Bad Boy was I did a, a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship between 2018 2019 and it started out in the actual collections at the National Museum of the American Indian looking at 
physical objects of crow possessions. And I started like talking with my dad and asking him, hey, can you send me some names within the family and I'll give it to the collection specialists and see if any of those names pop up in any of the records. And so he gave me several names and he gave me Dreams the Truth, or I think he might have given me Julia Bad Boy. And so nothing came up in the collection, physical collection of hers, but it was the kind of like the second day I looked in the photo archives at the National Museum of the American Indian. And I know Fred Miller photography very well. He was an amateur photographer. He resided on the Crow Reservation in the like early to mid-1900s. He worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs on, on the reservation, and he, he picked up this hobby of photographing. And he took some really amazing photos, portrait photos and also just photos just out in the world. So he has some very important photos. So I was looking through Fred Miller's, and there's ones that I've seen like all the time. And then I came across this photo, a portrait of this woman. And I just happened to look over and see the caption. It said, Dreams the Truth, Julia Bad Boy. And I kind of was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) This person's related to me. So, so, so just to interrupt for a quick second, you didn't know that was going to be there. No, I didn't. No, no. And the, I think it also happened in the collections archives, too, because w- when we put in the names of different family members, I think there were over a 100 objects in there that were biologically related to me. So that was really exciting. And then I got to hold like my great great grandfather's necklace. His name was Beartail. And then through the notes on what he he gave or sold, he sold some of his grandfather's stuff. And his grandfather was name was Greenskin. So I discovered Greenskin would be my fourth great grandfather. Wow. And I tell my dad, I was like, did you know a Greenskin? And he said, no. So none of the family knew about Greenskin. So that was pretty, pretty amazing. But back to Julia, bad boy. Um <laughs> Yeah, seeing that image of her, it's a beautiful image. And the kind of sweet thing about it is my dad's, one of his kind of favorite people was his grandfather. And his grandfather's name was William Dust. They called him Bill Dust. And that was his mom. And so I showed my dad that image of her. He hadn't seen a a picture of her either. And so it was sort of kind of wonderful And then I came home and I I had this series of work using Richard Thrussell photographs. And he's, again, another amateur photographer, resided on on the Crow Reservation the same time as Fred Miller and worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs as well. The thing that I like about Richard Thrussell is that he took a lot of photos of women, Crow women and children, and he himself was Cree. He was part Cree. So I also like that it was a native person photographing. And I thought, wait a minute, I should check my Richard Thrussell photos and see if uh, Dreams the Truth is in there. And sure enough, she was. And it was a picture of her, I think maybe a f- several years later. So she was a little bit older looking, but that was fantastic. So I had been living with her image, actually, <laughs> or a photo of her. For a long time, not really seeing that was, that was my great-great-grandma. I didn't know the bit about, about it all kind of being a surprise. So, so you're on this artist research fellowship, and you, you find these images. I, as somebody who researches, I know you can very often be looking for something, and then you know seven hours have gone by, and your day is over, and you haven't found a darn thing. So just awesome. How did you, in this case, take a discovery and think, okay, here's how I'm going to make it fit within the interests I explore in my practice. And this is where it's going to sound a little bit woo. I th- I think just that experience just kind of felt like ancestors kept, you know, coming out constantly in that trip. And then, then I was having other things with other Crow tribal members that I'm not related to and finding their a photo of the actual person and then seeing their name linked to an object. So it just kept happening over and over. 
And then in the case of the image of Julia, NMAI was really great about giving me high-res images of the photos that I was interested in. So they gave me a high-res photo of her. And it's a very powerful image. And I knew something had to happen with it. And so there's actually two works that I've made that include her. There's a print that I made, and the title is Her Dreams Are True, at Crow Shadow Institute of the Arts. And then also in 2021. Yes. And then this work. And for me, it's really important to have a, a record, a visual record of genealogy. And so I guess around that time too, I was already interested in genealogy. So I wanted to create this sort of visual record. And really it's for my daughter, Beatrice, so that she has works that she can point to and they'll be a record of who she's related to concerning the Crow tribe. So the whole idea behind that was to show that the line, the biological line, and then basically the concept was to dress in the style of Julia, which is a very typical Crow woman's dress. I mean, she was dressed pretty nice. Probably she knew she was getting her photo taken but Crow women, she's got the classic Crow woman's hairstyle, which is parted hair down the middle, and then your hair is braided over your ears, so you don't really see Crow women's ears. And then she had this very simple dress. It's like sort of like an everyday dress. And a lot of times they'd use like flower sacks, because the flower sacks would have like floral designs and stuff like that. So when they got done using the flower, they would use the flower sack for dresses and things like that. And then she's got an abalone necklace, which is actually my crow name is abalone necklace. So I really like that. And then what else does she have? Uh, Yeah, it's just those components. So I went and found material that was a little bit similar, not quite exact to what she was wearing. And so the dresses for Beatrice and I, and then I made us both abalone necklaces. And so I asked B before doing all of this, if she would want to do this project with me. And she said, yes. And so we just sat down in my dining area and set up the camera and she took my photo and then I took B's photo. So it's kind of this beautiful thing. And then I made these sort of photographic busts that they either, either way you look at it, become smaller and bigger or bigger and smaller. They descend or ascend. And I called it omnia. And omnia is the crow word for echo. And actually the literal translation of that is is like a river bank. And I was asking my dad about that. And he said, that's a very old word. Basically, if you ever stand on a river bank and you shout out, it echoes. And so I just love sort of the visual uh, nature of that word and also being so in tune with nature as well. But I also like the crow scene. What you put out there comes back to you. It's like an echo. And so I think that piece sort of ties into all those sort of definitions of what an echo is. And I also felt that Julia Bad Boy echoes within my DNA and within my daughter's DNA. And all that happens in, in the three-dimensional work. The, the images recede and advance left to right, right to left. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. So research, deconstruction, reconstruction, particularly of a past event or practice, artistic or otherwise, in a way that uses conceptualist strategies to reclaim and advance, to look forward. I can totally get how an artist who goes through UCLA's MFA program would learn and apply strategies like those, right? So a key element you added and that you have chosen to make central to your work, you know, for 15 years is, is family, not only ancestors, but your immediate family, which you mentioned a moment ago, your daughter Beatrice, and which we'll come to in a moment. When and why, I guess, did family, particularly, but not always, matrilineal lineage, become important for you to address? Is that something you knew you wanted to extend in the work when you are an undergraduate, when you get to grad school, or does it emerge later? I kind of feel like it's this deep-seated, maybe collective 
trauma in that growing up on the reservation and I went to school, public school in Hardin, which is just on the border of the reservation. It was a mix of white kids and crow kids and mixed kids like myself. I think when I went to undergrad and started learning about Native history and why I actually, why there are things like reservations, it made me kind of really sad because I was learning about these really important leaders just on my own accord after taking Native studies classes. It's like, well, I want to look into the Crow tribe, our history. And I was just thinking like the self-esteem for Crow children, if we were taught in our history classes about like these important leaders in our community, not only would that make us proud, but I think it would also help the white kids as well um, have a better understanding because they're living right in the area, which the very nature of the way things are on the reservation and their experience as well is all tied into things that happen to the Crow community. And so for me, I'm just trying to, I was trying to make sense of why things are. And so for me, part of that is when I start looking at my family and uh, realizing like they're part of the puzzle that sort of ties into these historical events. That's why I started including family and also families familiar. So wanted to start out there. But there are, there are things like, and this might go off a, a little off track, but in order to become a crow chief, there are four different, uh, like coups, they would say that a crow man would have to do in order to reach chiefdom. And one of those is to take a, a weapon from an enemy, take a gun. And I went to school with some takes the guns. And it wasn't until I started learning about chiefs, I'm saying like in 2014. And so I went to school, some takes the guns. I don't know. I can't remember their first name. Be like John takes the gun or something like that. And I realized, oh shit, that name is powerful because it's saying it's like one of the coups you have to do as a chief is takes the gun and probably takes the gun. Because all the names, all the last names are actually linked to an individual person. So Red Star was an actual person, and then uh, his name was used as a last name. So he was a head of household. And when they started doing the census and allotments, they would then give Christian names, and then they would use the man's like name. Because all crows had was just a name as a last name. So takes takes the gun, probably was uh did some incredible coup where he took somebody's gun. But stuff like that, it sort of kind of dawns on me. And that's just like a real family that takes the guns. And to me, I'm like, wow, could you imagine if I would have known that and would be able to share that with the takes the gun that I went to school with or other people? Like this person's last name is because of a great coup that you'd have to do. So just things like that, I think, come up and sort of ground me and also make me realize that history is all around us. I mean, sort of dormant, right? Like that name to me was dormant until I learned about the coup system for chiefs. Wild. That's a great story. A key way in which your family, like, like literally, lives in the work is that You've used your daughter and collaborated with your daughter in a whole lot of work. I'm not going to list a name, you know, read off a list of artworks because we'd be here all day. When and how did you begin to think about including her as a participant and as a collaborator? I'm in 2014, and she's got an incredible resume of museum exhibitions, <laughs> which even a, even a great American Craft Council Q and A, which is. Yeah. The best. I'll, I'll link to it on the show page. It's epic. So in 2014, I was working on an exhibition, a solo show for the Portland Art Museum called Medicine Crow and the 1880 Crow Peace Delegation. And there's a body of work called the 1880 Crow Peace Delegation that came out of that exhibition. And so it was a, 
a pretty tiny exhibition space, but I was missing like one work to kind of tie the whole exhibition together. And it just sort of happened as a fluke where I was, you know, working on artwork for that show and I had made several Xerox copies of the chiefs that are included in the 1880 Crow Peace delegation. And I just happened to give B some to color on or whatever. And then she brought back this. Can I interrupt for a quick second? How old was she then? Oh my gosh. I think she was, I think she was seven. I want to say she was seven, maybe six. Peak Um, coloring age. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I gave her a stack and then forgot about it. And then she came back and plopped down an image of medicine crow that she had colored and she put a crown on him. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is what I need for the show because I'm really doing a lot of this work for her and for the younger generation. And here is a young individual actually owning this photo and this history. And I thought, okay, let's do this. And I asked her if she wanted to make more of these and if she would like to be included in the show. And of course she said yes. So she made 20 drawings. And then on the way to the opening, we were driving and she said, I want to talk about my work. (laughs) And I was like, oh, (laughs) of course you do. I get to talk about my work. I presume she knew you talked about the work a lot, like in I front of people. I think so. I think so. Yeah, but I guess yeah, I hadn't yeah. even realized that she had really known that. So I was sort of thrown off when she said, I want to talk about my work. And and then I was like, of course, of course you should talk about your work. And I think that's the, the kind of the sad thing that we do to children is I think we really discount them a lot of times. Like I wasn't paying attention to her paying attention to me. And so I was like, okay, she's pretty transparent at this age. So I'm a little bit afraid of what might come out of her mouth. But when we were at the opening, I talked and then she, she talked about her work and she did a phenomenal job. She named all the chiefs and she was pointing out different nuances within her drawings. And I really learned a kind of a big lesson that day and that why am I sort of separating a, like a parent life from an art life? And this could, we could actually, you know, collaborate together. Um, and then it kind of just started progressing and, and with that show. So she, we invited her class to come and tour that exhibition and then she led the entire tour talked about my work and her work. And then from there, anytime a museum had asked me to come do some sort of project, I would say I'd like to include my daughter. And at first there was like a little bit of hesitation. And then it just sort of bloomed into this thing where towards the end of our collaboration, I think I ended it when she was, or I didn't end it, she ended it. (laughs) When she was 11, we were being asked by institutions specifically to come and work as a collaboration. She's now 16, I think. 16-year-olds are notorious for not wanting to do what their parents do. Yes. Um, How does that situation work now, whether it's... so, So her visage and physical self is in a lot of the work. How does that work now that she's at an age where surely she's developing elbows? Yeah. Insisting on space. Well, I think when she wanted to retire at age 11. Her website's still up, though, by the way, just for what it's worth. (laughs) Um, I think it started then at age 11 of her wanting to move on. And again, that was a good lesson for me to learn, too, because I think as adults, when we sort of hit something successful, we, like, keep going. And so she did everything she wanted to do within the collaboration and was like, it's a good time to leave. And so I felt that it was like really healthy. And part of my learning from her is that she sort of like transitioned into her own independence. And now it's like really asking and having conversations with her now that she's a little bit more aware of 
sort of how this work exists in the world, especially with like social media. So when we did Omnia, this is after she had retired. I think it's just like a couple years ago that we did that work. 21, yeah. And uh, I, the discussion was like, okay, you know that this could end up on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, because she's run into me on TikTok. I'm, I'm not on TikTok, but people talking about the work on TikTok. And then she'll be in the work. And so just having like a, a real kind of clear conversation about, you know, how this work will exist in the world. And so as long as we're having conversations like that and, and she's agreeing or doesn't want certain aspects of it, then it's totally fine. But yeah, I think that also so sort of like Instagram is just kind of becoming a thing in 2014 for me. And so, yeah, you're just sort of snapping photos of your children. And then I think now we've sort of learned that kids want to have consent of how their image is used on their parents' social media and things like that. So yeah, it's it's been kind of a wonderful wonderful lessons that I've learned along the way with working with her and in collaboration. I'm going to just say this. She, I might get in trouble, but I, I think, I think it's not off the table. Definitely. So I, I do feel like I was like really happy when she wanted to do Omnia, but I can see us doing things further down the road as well. And of course she's going to be seeing her 10 year old self in art museums when she's 80. Um, <laughs> yes. <she'll, laughs> so we've talked about your work engaging your family backward in time, your ancestors, and we've talked about your work involving your daughter forward in time, as it were. We've not talked about how you're in your work. Self-portraiture is a key foundation of, of what you've done, especially early in your career, kind of, you know, right around when you were at UCLA and finishing up. Why did you choose to make self-portraiture so central to what you were doing? Well, I think it's kind of a combination of where I was at in my art education and what I was being exposed to. And then also it being a, a hardcore hermit introvert. And then also... <laughs> Wanting something very specific, which was a, a crow woman. And I was the only crow woman that I knew in the area at that time in LA. So it was sort of a combination of all of those things, just things that I was seeing other artists that were using themselves in the work and then just access and then really knowing that there was a specific thing, specific facial expressions and just sort of a all-around idea of what I needed the work to be that I think I felt I would be too scared to sort of open that up to working with somebody to kind of convey mm -hmm. those messages through. I think, you know, when I'm making my work and I've gotten a lot better at it, is I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. And so if I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like stumbling around the whole time when I'm making a work, having kind of like no clue. And so the thought of bringing somebody in, they would have to be really forgiving and flexible because I, I, I would be like, I don't know, maybe let's try it or something like that. And so it's so much easier to, to put that burden on myself and sort of be awkward alone than, you know, working with somebody else. Although I have been starting to include other people in photo work. Yeah, you're actually in the work a lot less in recent years than you were earlier on. When you were making those decisions about including yourself in the work, were there artists whose work helped you understand that that was a, a valid path and a good decision? I think, you know, I'd get compared to, like, this is Wendy's, like, Cindy Sherman work. And I always sort of felt like, oh, no, I mean, I really like Cindy Sherman's work, but Cindy Sherman's playing a character, and that's not what I'm doing. I I am actually Upsalaga, and those are my traditional clothing that I, I wear every year. And so I'm definitely not playing Indian here, you know? So um, when that comparison is made, I'm kind of like, ah, no, I think we're doing completely 
different things, but no, I think I was looking at like David Hammond's and um, sort of art like that, that was sort of really exciting to see. And, and so I would say, yeah, sort of David Hammond's was kind of a big influence for me in grad school. Were you looking at and thinking about how Shireen Nishat used herself in her work? I, I looked at her work also really inspired by that work. And of course, Kathy Opie was in it. I think she still is a professor at UCLA. So seeing Kathy Opie in her work as well, I really love work that is about identity. So any of the major artists working with identity were definitely an influence for me. Um, and my best friend in grad school and still is Iranian. So like seeing Shirin Nishat's work with my friend and her sort of breaking down some of the symbology and history that's going on with those works that she made, I believe in the 90s, right? Those works with the... Beginning in the 90s, yeah. 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 So yeah, no, I, I think seeing her work was very powerful for me as well. My guest is Wendy Redstar. We'll be right back after a break. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego, Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now, through August 2023, see Rosas's first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Thaddeus Mosley, Forest, an exhibition featuring five large-scale wooden sculptures. They stand together and unlock shape-shifting experiences before the eye. Mosley describes his compositional experimentation as the pursuit of presence, quote, the alchemy of turning something neutral into something alive. Forest by Thaddeus Mosley is on view now at the Nasher through August 20th, 2023. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Now back to my conversation with Wendy Redstar. A moment ago, you mentioned the clothes you wear in in a number of the works in which you feature. And there is an elk tooth dress that figures in a vast amount of your work. You wear it in Indian Woman Sitting, Indian Woman Standing from 2005, Last Thanks from 2006, Four Seasons from 2006, The Last Thanks from 2006. You get you get the idea. So I'd like to know more about that dress and, and why it recurs in the work. So first up, what is the significance of an elk tooth dress in Crow culture? So that's a Crow women, uh, women's and girls traditional dress. And they're made of uh, trade cloth. And like the traditional colors that were available for the longest time were red and this dark navy that almost looks black. And then this really awesome Kelly greens, like one of my favorite colors. And then now we've gotten like pink and purple and all sorts of other mm-hmm. colors that you can see Altith dresses made in those. But basically what they're representing is the trading and hunting abilities of the men in the family. And the way Crow society works is that we tend to show off people in our family through the clothing that we wear. So that's kind of a big thing. There's the whole thing about not not bragging about yourself, but bragging about others. And one of the ways that that shows up is through the clothing that people wear. So on these elk teeth dress are elk teeth, and there's no, and they're the eye teeth of an elk. So there's only two teeth per elk. So some of these dresses have up to 500 elk teeth. So that's a lot of elk sewn onto them. Sewn onto them, yes, yeah. And then around reservation period, and I think that time period, uh, hunting was limited. I think even elk were almost nearly extinct. 
So the elk teeth started being carved out of bone and wood. So even when you go to museums, if you read some of the labels that accompany elk teeth dresses, you might see bone or wood included in the label. And that's an indication that the elk teeth are made out of bone and wood. But it still holds that same sort of symbolism and status. And I've heard that older women tend to wear more elk teeth because they are deserved to wear more elk teeth, or if you come from a very prominent family. And then when Crow women get married, it's the responsibility of the spouse's family to make them uh, an elk tooth dress. So I think if you end up with a family that really wants to show you off, they'll deck you out in elk teeth, lots of elk teeth. Is it the same dress in all of work you've made over, you know, 10, 15 years apart? So I'm so happy you asked me about that dress specifically, because it is a really important dress. And I almost feel like it's a it's its own entity. And that it was a dress that was made for me when I was 16 by Lance Hogan. And I had this dress that was made fairly quickly by an aunt-in-law who is Navajo mm. and real thankful that she made me this dress, <laughs> but she put the elk teeth on, not in the pattern of the way that Crow women put it in. And that's very specific. So I think Lance Hogan saw me parading and was like, pulled my mom aside and said, poor Wendy, I'm going to make her an elk tooth dress. <laughs> and so he did. And it's the most exquisite and well-tailored dress. And that's the dress, the dress that was made for me when I was 16, because I was also a Crow Fair princess. I represented the No Water District. And I was also a clan princess, too. And so he made me this amazing dress. And it's so well-crafted that it's it's just hung up, uh, held up, not hung up, held up all these years. And it's actually... Beatrice's dress now like she hasn't ever worn it but that's her dress stay in the family but yeah the, the kind of beautiful thing too when you're looking at these women and their outfits a lot of times other people have made these outfits and it's a way to show care and love and so in a way you know Lance if I say this he'd probably laugh at me but the way he made that dress made me really feel special and any time I put that dress on, I just feel like it empowers me. And it really, truly is a magical thing. And actually, when I would dress Bea up in her altitude dress, one time she said, I feel, I feel so beautiful. I feel, you know, I feel really special. And that's how that these dresses make you feel, because they almost like root you into the community, into the culture and the history. That's how powerful these dresses are. But then other components of my outfit, like the beadwork, most of the beadwork is done by James Takes Enemy. And so, yeah, I can just kind of look at my outfit and like the hair ties my mom made me. And I think I'm wearing some bracelets that Brocade Stops made. And so it's just kind of this amazing thing of all these different people that make up the look that I'm wearing. So all of that is true and make sense of its own accord. But another way in which the dress works within your art is that it is a reference or contains within itself a reference to studio portraiture and the way people tend to dress up or dress a certain way for formal studio portraiture. Indeed, you you know, we started out talking about how you you know something your mother or maybe it was your grandmother wore in a studio portrait and how you then found it in a museum all those all those years later. There is a whole heck of a lot of your work that references, winks at, deconstructs, has a laugh at the expense of the studio portrait construct. I think maybe the first works that do that are the Indian woman sitting, Indian woman standing works from 05. And you've really kept doing it ever since. What about, you know, poking studio portraiture in the eye is value important enough to you that you keep returning to it yeah when i made indian woman um sitting in indian woman standing those are actually 
titles that are directly pulled from different like ethnology photography that I was looking at. And I think, yeah, I did come in with a bit of like humor at it because I thought that's so ridiculous. <laughs> You know, like the, that is the, like the poses are funny too. I mean, they'll be yeah. on manpodcast.com, but the poses carry the humor forward. Yeah. I was like, that's the dumbest title I've ever read, you know, and it's an actual title of, uh, that I pulled off. It's not my title, you know, and because it's so in every way, it's not recognizing that individual or their community or anything like that. And it's just simply stating like a typology. You know, Yes, exactly. So, so there's that. And then the poses are actually poses that come from some of the uh, photos that I was looking at that of native people. And so I was interested in that as well. But the thing that has always sort of caught me every time I see these studio portraits of native people, crow people is that they're so jarring. There's something really jarring about them. And to see, like in the 1880 Crow Peace delegation of these chiefs wearing these amazing war shirts, um, and those shirts are all about how they became a chief, and then to have them sit in these sort of Victorian chairs, <laughs> you know, it kind of throws you a little bit because it's it's so it's two different cultures. It's totally two different cultures that are, you know, they're not melding together. Like they're distinctly the background, the chair is not melding with the Upsalia person sitting within that chair. And I always found that really fascinating to me because it, it sort of speaks to the history of native people and what has happened to us, what has been imposed on us, like why we're, why there are reservations, you know, it's like these sort of rules that aren't Upsalia rules. And so it's kind of blaring to me when I see photos like that. It, it really is kind of the thing that sort of sticks out to me. And I think that's why a big reason why sort of in that earlier work, I was sort of wrestling with that and trying to like, I wanted to feel it. So a lot of times I'll, I'll do stuff because I actually want to feel it or experience it in a way. So I wanted to kind of feel you know, what that felt like to be in sort of this faux European setting that I made in my studio. And then when I started the 1880 Crow Peace Delegation, it went even further into really talking about each of the Upsalaga chiefs and what their clothing meant and what they were saying through their hair and the fan that they were carrying and it spoke volumes. It really opens up those pictures. And so, yeah, I, I think, I think the, those earlier works are sort of precursors to sort of diving more into sort of wanting to talk about the language that isn't apparent or people, a lot of people wouldn't be aware of. It, it almost sounds like you're saying that throughout from 05 to like now, that you're interested in the idea of the studio as a metaphor for the artificiality of the European-American constructs imposed on land, lifeways, people, histories. Yeah, and to me, I think sometimes, you know, people find that offensive or political or they'll think it's wickedly funny. And It is wickedly funny. <laughs> to me, you know, it's all of those things, but most of all, it's just like facts. And I think sometimes people are like, wait, you know, it's just straight up facts, you know. And so sometimes I think people find facts hard to deal with. And so in some ways, I, I don't want to turn people off by the facts. I want to sort of have them enter into it and find their own space within within those sort of things that I'm grappling with myself. Yeah, it's it's probably worth my adding here that there is a, you know, that when you talk about Indian woman sitting, Indian woman standing as being kind of stock photography titles from the 19th century, that's not like two pictures. That's like a billion pictures. Like you can't go through a collection of photography at the, you know, Springfield Library or the Johnsonville Museum or whatever without seeing 
many photos by many different photographers titled Navajo type or, Mm -hmm. or type of Yuki. You know, it's a, it's a, it, it extends from the way early 19th century European American made portraits of Native Americans were used, which was to construct what we now call and commonly refer to as race. And and those, you know, 1830s Catlins and Charles Bird Kings were used to invent this thing called race. And the language, once that thing was invented, that would, would be used was, you know, this is a yada yada type. Mm-hmm. You know, this is yeah. a fill in the blank type. And so it all extends from that. And art was fundamental in constructing it. And art never left, has never left that language and those constructs. And so it's it's there in your work and often in your work in a way that winks at it and, and elbows it. Yeah, I think there's a really amazing photo by Richard Thrussell. And it's a set of photos. I think this photo you could find at the Library of Congress because he was hired by the Indian Health Service to take photos because there was a big sort of tuberculosis crisis that was happening and especially affected Native people. And so they sort of put on this campaign to sort of show Native people how to not get tuberculosis. And part of, part of their thing was like, Native people eat food. Um, they sit down on the ground and eat food. And if you don't want to get tuberculosis, you need to sit at a table and eat food. <laughs> And so Richard Thrussell is taking photos of, you know, crows in their teepees and camps eating food the way that they eat food. And then there's a photo of like sort of demonstrating an example of what they need to do now. And it's this like man and wife and their son and they're at a a table and it's like a formal dining situation with China and it's a really fascinating image because it's so jarring. But I also found that kind of interesting how it was folded into just like another way of assimilating crow people by, you know, saying your lifestyle gives you tuberculosis. So you need to have a European lifestyle um, where you're, you're sitting at this table. It's like one of my favorite images and I'd love to do an artwork around it at some point. But it's such a great image. Well, speaking of all of these images that you play with, whether it's abstracts such as studio photography of European-American-made photographs of Native Americans, ways in which you've deconstructed the work of Edward Curtis in specific series of, of, of your work, you know, one option for an artist is to... Or, or even in, in, in works that use photography, such as your your um, White Squaw series, which smirks and winces at dime store novel tropes. So one strategy an artist could address is not deconstructing problematic images or works made with problematic motives. You could just say, oh, those, and move on from them. Just not not grant them validity or, or legitimacy by simply choosing to exclude them from your personal canon and your the list of things that influence you but you've made the opposite choice to address them and repeatedly over many years in many bodies of work which has to be a specific choice so why have you decided that these are things that must be addressed tackled deconstructed you know i really think of my work as collaborative and a lot of times i i feel like i'm doing collaborative ancestral work but I also feel like I collaborate with the photographer, whoever, the historic photographer as well. And so in a way, I am in collaboration with the image that they made with something that I, I want to add to it or I want to focus specifically on. And it's because I'm questioning. I'm constantly questioning. And so I'm like, yeah, I have all these questions. I want to dig into this, but I, I also want to utilize the foundation for those questions. So I think that's kind of what's happening. It's like <clears throat> always, um, sort of acknowledging because I think that's the thing too with archives. I feel so humbled 
every time I go into an archive because I really try hard to not make assumptions, but sometimes I'll, I'll catch myself in that I've made an assumption and then I've been totally wrong about it. But that's what I like about archives is because they're human and humans make mistakes. I make mistakes. And so in some of these cases of the photo, I feel like that at that time period was the lens that they were working through and the reality in which they were living and definitely affected our reality that we're living now. So to sort of build on top of that, I think adds a different dimension and a collaboration with that image. Your crow piece delegation works two two different series are one of my one of my very favorite things. Great example of the deconstructing acknowledgement and deconstructing that, that we're talking about. The crow piece delegation works are rare within your oeuvre in that text is the activating element of the piece. It's it's crucial. Why did you decide that text was the way to go there when in almost nothing else in your work is text activating in a similar way? So when I sort of find, kind of landed on the concept of working with these delegation photos, so that, that was kind of the first thing is I, I learned that these specific portraits of these chiefs were delegation photos taken on Washington, D.C. And so that was fascinating in itself, the whole history of Native delegations going to D.C. Goes um, back to the 1840s at least. Yeah, and I get yeah, and I, I guess some of the very very early ones is when they would take native people to Europe to meet with royalty and and things like that. Seventeen seventies, yeah, yeah. So yeah, just like learning about that and and the fact that they're delegation photos. And then I was sitting down with this uh, Crow historian. Um, he lives on the Crow Reservation. He's white. His name's Timothy McCleary, and I was just like what do you know about this dude? <laughs> and, you know, he, he would tell me things and some things I, I knew. And so I just started like writing on the photos just in pencil. And then I, then I started like looking into my own research and then I would talk to like my dad or something. And then he would tell me like a story, like how my grandfather used to ride and, Chief Plenty Coup's wagon with him. I was like, that's so crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like he died in the 30s, so it really wasn't that long ago. That was our last chief, was Plenty Coup. And my grandpa was born in 1907. So I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, he actually knew this chief. And so it just sort of started as writing down notes directly on these sort of photocopies. And then I thought, wait a minute, this this stuff is so good. This stuff is so interesting. I think I should just write this directly on there. But then I was also part of it was like really wanting to see the image too and take time with the image. And so tracing the image. And then I'd notice like, wait a minute, all these chiefs like to wear rings on their finger, like brass rings. That's kind of interesting. Or I think Medicine Crow is wearing this eagle claw bracelet. I don't think I'd ever even like really notice that. If I hadn't like outlined it, cause I, you know, we look at images so fast now. So part of the, the tracing was to slow me down. And then when I would do that, I would notice things. I'd start looking up like things or asking about it. And then just wanting to include all my, all the things that I found interesting in the different like areas that I was researching. And so it was pretty, for me, a pretty straightforward piece. Yeah, it does. It does. It definitely does slow the viewer down. It also, and I don't know if this is the kind of thing that's ever important to an artist or not, but these are works that when you see them on a wall in a museum that you can't look at from 20 feet away, it really helps if you look at them from three feet away or two feet away. So it forces, you know, what you're doing, the way you are making the work forces a viewer to be more intimate, direct, personal, with the work, with the history of the image on which, with which you're working. I mean, there are a lot of ways, historical and intellectual and physical, that those works work that I really dig. 
Yeah, I'm, you know, those works uh, and any work that I write on terrifies me because I'm dyslexic. And so, like, once I had this uh, show at Q Foundation and I, I spelled mountain wrong. Like, I put the, uh, I, like, switched the A and the I. And then it wasn't until, like, the documentation, like, years later, I was like, oh, my God, you know, and those sort of things sort of mortify me. So, like, anytime I'm writing, I'm like so worried about it and i also my handwriting is so bad like i have really ugly oh are you kidding me your handwriting is great <laughs> no no, no, my, no, no, no. my dad has really ugly handwriting so i'm like okay but one of the things that i i like too is i i really love going i feel like i don't see this that often anymore but when you go into like public restrooms and people write on the bathroom stalls and some of it's like just really juicy or weird or, you know, silly. And I thought I kind of want to create that effect with these images, you know, where there are some really kind of heavy things within those images, but then you turn around and there's something a little bit lighter or funny within it as well. So sort of playing around with sort of the tensions and maybe some different voices as well. A valuable mix of respect and lack thereof, mm -hmm. perhaps. <laughs> Finally, you're 20 years into your mature career, more or less. That's scary. When, <laughs> when you started this work, or maybe since you've started the work, have you found yourself thinking, why aren't European-American art historians conducting these investigations why is it why 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 does it fall to me the artist to do what maybe somebody in a dis different discipline is doing because as i've worked on some of these constructions from the historical side of my professional career i see that european american historians so not art historians but just historians have been interested in the types of constructions we're talking about since at least the 1950s since at least uh, Roy Harvey Pierce's 1953 and 1964 book, Savagism and Civilization, which really deconstructs 200 years of European-American behavior. So, yes, this is all a long way of asking. Have there been points in the last 20 years where you have thought to yourself, isn't this someone else's work? Not or a different all. field's work? Not at all. And I will say, though... Especially in the native side of things, I think because we've been traumatized for so long and the, with the rise of social media, which has, you know, good and bad, mostly I think bad, but that it's actually given native people a louder, a voice where we can sort of shift things where we used to not be able to. But what I found is that, you know, Native people do speak up when you're utilizing their community's possessions or doing research in it. So I think that's been a big shift. But also in the case of myself, too, like I know sometimes I'll get like harsh feedback from my community on certain things. But there's like a whole other political layer to that for myself. So I think it's pretty, it's work that has to have a lot of care to it. Like you really have to truly be invested in it. It can't be just something that I'm going to research this and write a paper because it's tied to so much trauma that I think it really takes somebody who is invested in that's sort of their mission is really investing in those communities and those histories. And so that's not, I don't think that's very typical of just anybody taking up an art history field or something like that. Cause, cause it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I will say in my career, I've worked with some amazing art historians and curators who, you know, come to me and they like say, I don't know anything, but you know, I want to, I want to work with you and, and be open. And I think those are kind of the most fruitful partnerships that I've had and that they're allowing me to do what I do and they're supporting me 
through that. And then I think there are amazing things that can happen. And one example is with uh, the curator Annika Johnson at the Jocelyn Museum and the Indian Congress work that we did together, mm-hmm. which has been amazing and has um, shown at um, the Broad and Sharjah Biennial. And now it's currently they're making a remodel of the museum and making sort of a permanent display for that. But Annika mentioned that there are Omaha tribal members who are picking up their own project based on the Indian Congress and and seeing the Indian Congress and seeing their tribal members that were photographed and participated in that exposition. So, yeah, I think when you run into white people or European folks that are sort of working in that way, really powerful things can help and advance the field forward. Wendy Redstar, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.